iHeartRadio's getting you in the mood. Yeah, that mood. Binge Sex.Life, Season 2 now. Join sexologist Morgan Penn and Hayley Sproul for a 10-episode journey into the most intimate sides of New Zealand. Morgan's putting her body on the line to find out what's going on inside and outside of the bedroom in Aotearoa. Season 2 of Sex.Life is out now. All thanks to our friends at Wild Secrets. Use the promo code Sex.Life for a 20% discount at wildsecrets.co.nz. This is episode three of Speaking Secrets, a joint project by News Talk ZB and the New Zealand Herald. Please be aware this podcast is about sexual assault and harassment. It may be confronting or upsetting. Helpline resources are available in the show notes. The Me Too movement has turned into a hurricane force sweeping across the world. It started in Hollywood, and now New Zealand faces its own reckoning. But why now? New Zealand is no stranger to sexual abuse and harassment. We've been hearing about it for years. Speaking Secrets talks to people who've broken their silence in this country and helped pave the way for this pivotal moment we find ourselves in. What was it like for them speaking out? And what can we take from their experience as the issue is brought out of the darkness? What do we want? You just take it! Where do we want it? Now! It's tough to look back inside yourself to revisit that boy. I shook. I literally, physically shook. I was so scared. As a victim of sexual violence... Order. The member will leave. Just felt like I had been completely desecrated just used by someone and spat out. I'm journalist Georgina Campbell and you're listening to Speaking Secrets. In November 2015, the then Prime Minister, John Key, sparked walkouts at Parliament. The then Labour leader, Andrew Little, was pushing for rights of New Zealanders held on Christmas Island. During the fiery debate, Key responded with this comment. Well, it's not actually easy because these people, some of them are rapists, some of them are child molesters, and some of them are murderers. And these are the people that the Labour Party is saying are more important to support than New Zealanders who do their protecting when they come back here. And then he said this. Mr Speaker, I have a responsibility to the New Zealanders here at home that they are looked after. And what the Labour Party is saying is, to hell with the rest of New Zealanders, these people should be put on a commercial aircraft and dispatched Order. to New Zealand. Order. Will you back the rapists? Order. Order! The next day, Speaker David Carter ruled he could not order Key to apologise for the comment, you back the rapists, because he didn't hear it at the time. He said, had he heard the remark, or had it been drawn to his attention more promptly, he would have ruled it to be unparliamentary, an explanation he made to MPs a number of times. What happened yesterday happened yesterday. Collectively, it wasn't addressed well at the time, but time has passed. Opposition MPs revolted, with former Green Party co-leader Matilia Tude leading the charge. As the victim of a sexual assault, I take personal offence at the Prime Minister's comments and ask that you require him to withdraw and apologise. She was followed by several others who identified themselves as victims of sexual abuse and violence. Eventually, the Speaker gave this warning. I now will require any member who takes a point of order along the same lines to immediately leave the chamber. 
Green Party MP Marama Davidson ignored the warning and was next to stand up. The Speaker kicked her out of the House and others walked out with her. I met with the now co-leader of the Green Party in her Parliament office on the seventh floor of Bowen House in Wellington. We spoke about her decision to so publicly identify herself as a victim of sexual violence. We got feedback from around the world, around the country, that that action had touched people, and I didn't know that that was going to happen. And what I felt in the house immediately was a sense of, as I was listening and watching my peers, was a sense of collective strength. Point of order, Porter Williams. As a victim and survivor of family violence and an advocate for victims of violence, I take personal offence at the comments of the Prime Minister. Order, order. No, we're now getting into this. And knowing that there's lots of us, there's probably more than what we realise, and that we're able to do this together, felt like, felt safer, felt safer than what I'd ever felt. Because sexual abuse, violence, rape, it... It essentially um, is such an assault. Um, and I'm, I'm going to talk too that doing this interview with you feels uncomfortable um, and it feels slightly unsafe, not because of you. You've been wonderful. It feels unsafe to be speaking out against what happened to me, the sexual abuse that happened to me, because um, at the moment that sexual abuse happens to you, you are silenced and you feel like you've been pushed out to a space that is dark and alone and cold. And that's essentially what I went through um, when, when it was happening to me and it happened over time. I just felt further and further and further like I needed to shut up. And it's a downward spiral because the, the abuse silences you and then you feel like you cannot talk to anybody and it just keeps going down and down and down. So what is your story, Madama? When you say you were sexually abused, what happened to you? I was a young girl, probably eight, probably eight or nine, and over months and months, if not a year, um, I was, I was, oh, so <laughs> I was, um, oh, I'm sorry. <sighs> so I'll just talk, I'll just, yeah, I'm okay with this. So here I am, I'm now the co-leader of a political party, you know, in one of the most powerful positions that women could ever be in. And I'm still thrown by this when I have to go back to that time. Um, so if I'm feeling like that, with all my privileges and supports, um, I can't imagine how others feel. <laughs> so, when I was a young girl, I was frequently, frequently um, visited in my bedroom at night by um, an older relative, a slightly distant relative, who had been staying with my family for um, some time. And, you know, I think that I think that should give enough um, essence. Um, 
yeah. <laughs> Marama felt embarrassed and ashamed of the abuse. Confused. I didn't know what was happening and scared, mainly scared and didn't want to... In the moment that I was being abused, I was... I pretended to be asleep and not knowing what was going on. That was my protection psychologically, was to pretend I didn't know and not say a word. So that was sort of like a, a coping mechanism? Yep, it sure was. I had no tools. Well, you shouldn't have to have tools. Um, I had no, no understanding of what I was supposed to do in that moment, and I felt frozen and silent. Marama didn't speak about the abuse for years because she wanted to protect her family. This is uncomfortable for me to sit here and give this information, mainly because I love my family and because they were strong and loving and they provided me with unconditional love and safety. And I want to be very clear about that. And I'm uncomfortable about this because um, this isn't just sort of is my story, but it affects a whole lot of people. But I know that my family are so supportive of me that they will understand that this also is my story. I have a right to tell this story. And over the years that I didn't tell the story, it was out of protecting my family, wanting to maintain the reputation of my family. Like, when anyone's family has to be in the public about this incredibly personal issue, that is, um, that's a huge thing. So all of those years I was wanting to protect my family. You know, you have mentioned to me that you had a really strong and loving family and I think with this issue sometimes there are stereotypes about who gets abused yeah. and, and what families it happens in. So yeah. that kind of dispels that, doesn't it? This is what I'm very keen to talk to you about today, is that in a lot of cases, having a strong, loving family actually gives you a different sense of um, obligation to them that can even more so silence you. So people need to understand that it's, especially when you feel like you have unconditional love, is when you will, meet, you will feel most um, challenged about um, upsetting your family and protecting them from the emotions. I knew they would, get, they would be hurt and feel guilt if they found out what had happened to me. And that's what, that's what sexual violence does. Um, you start having to manage and protect all the other loving relationships, all the relationships you have in your life um, because you're ordinary human who wants to protect all those other relationships and you know straight away my, the people who love me will feel destroyed that they haven't kept me safe <laughs> and I want to be very clear that that the incidence of sexual abuse and sexual violence can happen to anyone and is happening to anyone. And that, that's interesting 
you know, talking about trying to protect these relationships. So people who are, are close in, in your life, but did you also feel quite isolated because of the abuse that you had experienced? So the, the violence, the sexual violence that I experienced um, immediately sections you off, sections you off psychologically and you put yourself, you find yourself in a space where you, you want to hold that experience preciously, protectively to yourself. Uh, and oh, I didn't even know the words. I didn't know what it was called. I didn't understand what this thing was. I didn't know there was a label for it. It just was such an assault, such a personal, embarrassing, shameful, shameful assault that you just shut down and I didn't, I didn't separate myself from my family for, uh, I still maintained my loving connections to my family, but for the incident, I separated it out. I put the incident and all of my feelings about it to the side, to one side, and I, oh no, no, I'm, it's all coming back to me now, no, I, I acted up. I remember. So I remember now. I um I I had some troubling behaviour as a little girl. I didn't know how to respond. I didn't know to tell people the real reason of what was going on and I probably didn't even know what was going on. But I did start acting up. I got really clinging to my parents. I didn't want them to leave my sight because um that's when the abuse was able to happen. So I was screaming, yelling at the top of my voice whenever they had to leave. And yeah, so that's what was going on. Oh, they're going to feel so gutted. If I was a parent right now hearing this, I have a little girl who's nine. And if I was a parent knowing that I didn't know what was going on, and that was why my little girl didn't want me to leave. I'd be devastated. And we need to remove the fault from anybody but the perpetrator. Eventually, Marama reached a point in her life when she talked to her family about the abuse. And I think it was only because it happened to come up. Not, not my incident, but probably um, family members, particularly females, my female cousin, I think it might have been talking about her own experience, and then it just came out. And then we discovered that I wasn't the only victim of this particular person, and that it just happened to come up that other people, it had happened to other girls as well. You said, you know, it would be hard for your family to listen to this interview. Do you have a message that you'd like? To tell them that I'm fine and that they were the most loving, in tune, unconditionally loving family and parents that a child could ever, ever, ever want, and that, and that um, I'm speaking now to try and help others, and that I know this is really yuck and probably really painful. Um, but 
none of it was their fault. Not even the response. Not knowing wasn't their fault. Um, and they were. I wish everybody had the parents that I had, that I have. They're the most beautiful parents and family on on the planet. But um, sexual violence is its own monster, and and it sections us off as individuals. And we need to come together and tell the stories that will help other people to speak up and tell someone. Going back to 2015 in the House, watching this reaction to John Key's comments. Jen Logie, point of order. Um, as a victim of sexual assault and an advocate for survivors, order, I would order, ask that the order, record be... Order, no. Catherine Delahunty. As a victim of sexual order, assault, order. I take personal offence would like order, to ask for a The member will resume her seat. What were you thinking as you watched your peers standing up saying that they were victims of sexual abuse? That this was a powerful way of resisting being silenced when we knew we were all able to do it together, that we weren't alone, that this was one of the most powerful ways of combating what sexual abuse and rape does, which is silence you and isolate you away. And to see us in one of the most powerful houses in the country, um, coming together as women, standing up together, speaking out against sexual violence and rape, um, I found incredibly powerful. When you walked into Parliament that day, did you know that you were going to be identifying yourself as a victim? Like, was that a, a planned thing amongst you guys? So, Metedia Today had, uh, the day before, had highlighted to her female colleagues across the House that she was going to make a stand, and she invited others, if they felt like it, at that time, to also make a stand. And I didn't know right up until we were in there what my decision was going to be, but I left it open and I felt the strength of others and was able to stand too. Point of order, Marama Davidson. As a victim order, of sexual member, violence. But then your microphone was switched off. Order, the member will leave the, ch the order, the member will leave the chamber. How did that feel? Uh, so I think various women had stood up and then it got to me and that was happened to be the moment that, they that the speaker decided, nope, that's it. And I was the first one to be kicked out of the house and that was on my first few days in the house at all because I was new on the job. And I just remember feeling I've got to go with the flow if I'm going to have my microphone turned off. I kept talking, also not fully aware that my microphone had been turned off. I kept talking, and that also meant that I wasn't aware that the speaker, because I couldn't hear properly, had kicked me out, but I saw people walking out, and then I got told I was had to go. I got people next to me were sort of like, um, you've, you've, been, you've been asked to leave. And I was like, oh, oh, but then I saw others walking out, and I thought, I'm not on my own. I'm not being, I'm not walking out on my own. That was the big important thing. But when the microphone was turned off, felt a bit insulting. That's why I think I naturally just kept talking.
Marama's experience of sexual violence has given her greater cause to support victims. To understand that we have to do this together, that we have to reach out to each other and that we have to make it safe for people to tell someone what they've just been through. If I can help, if I can do good um, with my role and help women and all victims of sexual abuse, that's then, you know, I will feel, I will feel okay. This is uncomfortable. This is really uncomfortable, but um, that's a smaller price to pay than going to bed at night thinking there's no end to the sexual abuse that's going to happen to other girls and boys and people and women and all um, victims unless we collectively try and do something together. Marama says sexual violence can happen to anyone. But are there groups of people who it's more likely to happen to? I rang Canterbury University criminologist Greg Newbold to get his take. Sexual abuse victims are typically um, young people. Um, Usually the perpetrator is a friend of the family or an uncle or a stepfather. Very rarely is the perpetrator a natural father and often Maori, more often Maori than than any other ethnic group in New Zealand. That's the typical sexual abuse victim in New Zealand. Why is that? Well, fathers generally are protective towards their children. Stepfathers are more likely to physically abuse their children. Children brought up by a mother and a stepfather are more likely to go to prison than even than children who have been brought up by a solo mother. And stepfathers quite often don't care about the mother's children, particularly if those children were side by another father, they quite often have antagonistic attitudes towards those children. Um, That's why those children get physically abused and often sexually abused as well. Is that also associated with their socioeconomic status or can it happen in families from all walks of life? It does happen in families of all walks of life, but it's rare among liberal-minded, middle-class people compared with uh, the poor classes and with the ethnic groups such as Maori, for example. It's more, it's more common in male-dominant households. It's less common in egalitarian households. It's dangerous to just point the finger at one ethnic group because it can happen everywhere, but it tends to happen more in families where there is um, high levels of alcohol abuse, family dysfunction, and a culture of male dominance. It's less likely to happen in well-adjusted, educated families where, uh, where there's an egalitarian relationship between the mother and the father. It's less likely to happen in families where there is no physical abuse. It's more likely to happen in families where there is domestic violence, domestic abuse, high levels of alcoholism and a 
culture of male machismo. New Zealand has a serious problem with child abuse. We know that. A report called Cumulative Prevalence of Maltreatment Among New Zealand Children highlighted the issue again this year. Four types of maltreatment were included in the study, neglect, emotional abuse, physical abuse and sexual abuse. It's Early Edition with Kate Hawksby on News Talk ZB. Well, a damning new study has revealed almost one in four... One in four Kiwi children have been reported to Child Protection Services. The AUT report followed more than 55,000 children who were born in 1998 up until they turned 17. So just how worrying is this? Tracy Martin is the Minister for Children and she joins me now. Morning to you. Good morning. This report also found that almost 10% of children had been victim to abuse or neglect. Can this be a realistic image of how things are in New Zealand? I find it virtually impossible to believe. I know, and I think that's that's probably what we all do. We all find that hard to believe that that could possibly be our country. Um, but I'd have to say that it's probably likely. It it Oh, it's not a good picture, is it? No, it's not. No, it's not a good picture. And I think... What our services, our um, what the expert advisory service told us uh, when it, the expert advisory agency told us when they were set up um, that that created Oranga Tamariki under the previous government was we are not doing well uh, with regard to the care of our children and we have to change how we how we manage this. Hosking. Children's Commissioner Andrew Beecroft is with us. Andrew, good morning to you. Good morning, Mark. I find the numbers hard to believe. What about you? Yeah, they're deeply distressing and concerning. I'm not a statistical expert and haven't unpacked every detail in the report, but, you know, it's roughly in line with what we've known for some years. And, for instance, last year there were about 14, nearly 15,000 substantiated findings of abuse across the country for under 17-year-olds. That's roughly in line with what this figure is saying, which is following one cohort of children born in one year. So what's even more disturbing, even if you accept the numbers, is this study went from 98, 1998 to 2015, so it isn't new. None of this is new. So all this angsting and worry we've talked about for the last couple of decades presumably has counted for nothing. Yeah, you know, I was at a conference yesterday and it was the same question. Why is it? What is there about New Zealand that produces these results? The same results, I might say, for things like um, bullying, uh, family violence, uh, and new suicide. And I, I think there's some connection bes- between all those issues. But you would think, with children being, I guess, the most important human responsibility we can have, yeah. that somehow we don't have the zero-tolerance attitude that a community needs to have. It's a big question. It's been an ongoing question for the country, and you're dead right to raise it. Uh, I remember that film, uh, Spotlight. It said, I think, tellingly at one point, if it takes a village to raise a child, it takes a village to abuse a child. I spoke to Child Matters Chief Executive Jane Searle about why New Zealand has such a problem with child abuse. Well, I think that New Zealand is really no different from anywhere else in the world in that child abuse is prevalent in every society and always has been. There's much discussion about where we sit among other OECD countries and how bad our rate of abuse is. And there's some debate about where we sit or whether it's because we capture our statistics better than other countries. But really, for me, I always think that all that 
that's relevant is that we know we have a problem and a significant problem and that even if you have one or two children being abused, that's one too many. Talking about child sex abuse specifically, why do children become targets of of that type of abuse? Well, children become targets because they're vulnerable and um, so it is vulnerable people that get targeted with um, any type of violence and so we don't really know the true levels of sexual abuse because so much of it goes unreported but again we know that New Zealand has a significant problem. Why does so much of it go unreported? Well there's a stigma attached to it, there's the fact that the way children are groomed not to speak and to keep those secrets and there's a lot of things at play and it's incredibly, uh, incredibly traumatic at times and hard thing for victims to come forward. Yeah, how are children groomed? Well, I think um, what's important to understand with grooming is that children uh, are often at more risk from people that know them rather than from strangers. And it's people that have relationships with them or with their family, whether it be within their own family, within their own community, someone they know through a sporting group, whatever that is. So it is built on the ability to groom a child and condition a child to um, keep secrets and not tell about the abuse and not tell what's happening. For a lot of victims, that um, means that they have a lot of self-blame. They have a huge amount of guilt around it because the way the grooming has been done. And these are all significant factors as to why it's extremely hard for people to speak up. And one of the things that has been brought up is that even when children are surrounded, I guess in terms of their immediate family, by really loving, caring parents and they have a really great relationship with them, do you think that makes it it harder in terms of children feel this need to protect their family and protect that amazing relationship they have and then not, you know, want to talk about the abuse? Yeah, and look, there's some work on the field who will say that often children um, from good homes, you know, good children won't tell because they are trying to protect their family and protect others. And there's no doubt that that is often at play as well. The circumstances of abuse are just so varied that sometimes it's hard to put broad sweeping statements on it. But uh, the ability to be able to continue to abuse a child is... Um, it needs that secrecy. So perpetrators of that sort of abuse do spend some time trying to groom a child to make sure that they can keep that secret. Mm. I feel like we keep hearing about this problem and how bad it is and, and we hear the cases that, that are horrible. Like, When are things going to change or, or are they already changing? Well, I think what, where we have had movement in the last 20 years is that we have a, a better recognition at a societal level that there is a problem, but I don't think that that means that people understand the problem anymore. For there to be change, it takes uh, change to happen at every tier of society and it's a problem that has so many contributing factors that the solutions are not a one-size-fits-all. They have to address all those different contributing factors that mean that we have abusive children in New Zealand. So if you look at a um, government level, often people will tell you that actually this is a government responsibility. Well, government can't achieve this on their own because not only does the government uh, need to have the right prioritising and resources put into programmes for support for victims, for what happens to children who are in state care, how to keep them safe, for programs for people who are at risk of exhibiting, exhibiting abusive behaviour or connecting abusively toward children. Not only do we have that, we have it at a community level where you know, we need to ask our sporting groups, do you have safe recruiting procedures? Do you have a policy on child protection? We need to, as individuals, ask ourselves, would we be willing to stand up if we saw something that we didn't think was okay or that we had a doubt about? Do we actually know how to report? And it's often very difficult for people to report. And so 
would we as individuals challenge another adult if we had a doubt about the safety of a child? So it's something that just can't be achieved by just resourcing so government agencies, so that, that is an important part of the solution as well. It really comes down to, as a society, at all levels, what tolerance are we willing to have around these issues and what um, levels of abuse are we willing to accept um, for the children in New Zealand. And is that tolerance changing? I think with the Me Too movement, these issues in general are being discussed more. I I definitely think um, that we're, we're losing some of the stigma for the victims around some of this abuse. And I think that things like the Me Too movement help to shine a light on what can happen to people when, you, when they're vulnerable. And that's, that is only a good thing. I think that people's awareness is definitely increasing as well. So conversations that people have with our organisation, even with me personally, I feel that we've moved quite a long way even in the last um, five years around this. For that to continue, for that then to turn into um, positive ways of protecting um, vulnerable children is the important next step that we need to take. What was it like, say, like 30 years ago in terms of our tolerance? Well, 30 years ago, our awareness was so much less than what it is now. And 30 years ago, these issues were not spoken about, um, not even just in the media, but among people. And I think that that has changed drastically. I think that people are more aware of of that as adults. We have a responsibility to protect the children that are either in our families or in the communities that we live in. Um, And I think there's that old New Zealand thing of that if it happened in someone else's home, we left it alone, we didn't intrude into our neighbour's business. And that, I think, is a long-held belief. And that is finally changing. I mean, it's still at play, there's no doubt about that. But uh, there's definitely a greater societal awareness, there's definitely greater conversations about these issues. In the next episode, I talk with former naval officer Hayley Young about the life-changing aftermath of her alleged rape while on deployment and how she found telling the Navy about her rape worse than the incident itself. Any listeners who have been affected by this episode can find helpline resources in the show notes. This podcast is a joint project by Newstalk ZB and the New Zealand Herald. Produced and hosted by me, Georgina Campbell. Thanks to NZME's Wellington Studio, audio editing by James Irwin. Sound and video production by Mark Mitchell. Executive producer, Francis Cook. And editor, Andrew Laxon. Parliament archival audio from Parliament TV. One of the scariest things you can hear as a parent is quiet. But if you do get a little quiet time, have a listen to The Parenting Hangover. It's not scary at all. If she thinks, man, I've had a shit Mother's Day, it's not on me, okay? You're not my mum. That's the kids. The kids should have been best behaviour, and they chose not to, okay? Yeah. They chose to give you crappy presents. They chose to complain <laughs> at the nice breakfast we made. I'm just there, I'm helping, yeah. but it's, sorry, mate. The Parenting Hangover with Clinton Jordan. New episodes every Thursday on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts.